Thanks very much, Harry. Um, well done with all the difficult names. I'm going to come across those again. Um, we're back in Genesis. Last time we were in Genesis was last summer. Uh, let's pray for God's help as we look at it together. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit as we consider these words together, written down many, many years ago uh, for our benefits, for our instruction. Show us uh, your gospel plan, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Last Saturday, the king finally inherited the crown. Something he'd been waiting his whole life for was finally his. He'd done nothing to earn it, but he inherited it by virtue of his birth. None of us will receive the same inheritance as the king, obviously. But all of us, if we trust in Jesus Christ, have the opportunity to inherit and pass on something far more precious. God's blessing. And our reading today tells the story of how that blessing passes on down the generations. First of all, we see Abraham bless his son Isaac from his deathbed. We then see the world, or get a glimpse of the world outside of God's blessing with the descendants of Abraham's son Ishmael. Now the story then zooms in from the world uh, to one um, troubled, painful pregnancy and God's surprising choice of Jacob as the next in line to receive the blessing. And then finally, we see his brother Esau reject God's, the God-given right to be blessed because he prefers a bowl of soup. Now, we may feel rather uncomfortable as we follow the path that God's blessing takes. It's not the way we would have chosen. It's not the way we would have planned. But that is because God's blessing comes to us entirely by his grace, not at all by who we are or what we can do. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not yet convinced about the Christian faith, I'd love to invite you this morning as we read this story to think, how could I receive God's blessing for myself? Because although these events happened 4,000 years ago, 4,000 miles away, they point us to Jesus Christ, the one through whom all God's blessings come, to all who respond to him with faith. We're going to discover uh, four scenes in the story The first is faith on his deathbed. Faith on his deathbed, verses 1 to 11. Abraham had taken another wife, presumably after Sarah died, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dedan. The descendants of Dedan were the Asherites, the Letushites, and the Lumites. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephah, Hanok, Abida, and Eldar. All these were descendants of Keturah. But Abraham left everything he owned to Isaac. And while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. Well, just imagine if that happened in your family. One child gets the whole estate and the rest get trinkets and one-way tickets to some remote Pacific islands. But Abraham isn't following the normal rules of inheritance. He is demonstrating faith in God's promises. We need to back up a little bit to see uh, how he's got to where he is now. We're going to have to do that a few times today because in some ways the writer is tying up a few loose ends from the story so far. 
You may remember that Abraham's first wife, Sarah, was childless. She was unable to conceive. And that did not seem like a very good start. Because God had said when he first called Abraham in chapter 12 that he would bless the world through Abraham and his descendants. But how is God going to do that if Abraham and Sarah can't even have one child? And so we get to chapter 15 and Abraham says to God, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. And in chapter 15, God reiterates the promise. He says, this man will not be your heir. Your own flesh and blood will be your heir. Abraham believes, but still the years go by. And so Abraham and Sarah, they tire of waiting, and they take matters into their own hands. And Sarah gives Abraham Hagar, her Egyptian maidservant. He sleeps with her. She gives birth to Ishmael, Abraham's firstborn. And then 13 years later, God says to Abraham, Ishmael's not your heir. Sarah herself will have a child. She will be the mother of the promised child. And and Abraham struggles to believe again. And he says, oh God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. But now, as he lies on his deathbed, Abraham has learned that through all the ups and downs, the successes and failures of faith, God always keeps his promises. And maybe especially at the forefront of his mind, are words that God said to him when Sarah said to him, send Ishmael and his mother away. It pained Abraham to do that. Uh, But God said to him, listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. It's through Isaac that the promises are going to come. And so Abraham lies on his deathbed, and he has faith there. He knows for sure that God will bless the world through his descendants. Not through Ishmael, who's featured in the story so much so far. Not through these mysterious but multiple sons of Keturah who have only just arrived. All God's blessings will go to and through the child of promise, through Isaac. And so Abraham leaves everything to Isaac. And he gives him the best chance to enjoy them, the blessings. He sends the rest away. And so, finally, at last, Abraham is ready to leave the scene. Verse 7. Abraham lived 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, an old man and full of years, and he was gathered to his people. It's a heartwarming obituary. I don't know if you uh, read obituaries in the newspaper or uh, on the internet, perhaps. Some of them are, are quite heartwarming. Some of them are just a bit tragic. Abraham's is a heartwarming obituary, full of years. The idea there is full of contentment and satisfaction and peace. This is a man who, for all his faults and all his failures, he lived the life of faith. And so, even as he passes on the promises to Isaac, he receives a little bit of the promises for himself. Verse 9. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah near Mamre, in the field of Ephron, son of Zohar the Hittite, The field Abraham had bought from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with his wife Sarah. It's the only piece of promised land Abraham ever owned. He bought it in chapter 23. It is a plot just large enough to be the grave of himself and his wife. And maybe that little plot, that grave plot, is a hint that God's blessings will extend beyond this life. Yes, he blesses us with earthly physical goods. Abraham was a very rich man. But his greatest blessings are not physical, they're spiritual. 
And so like Abraham today, we can trust God in the face of death to eternal life beyond it because Jesus rose from the grave and we will also if we put our faith in him. But what is that blessed resurrection life like? Is that something we only get when we die? Or is it something that begins now? Well, the story, I think, gives us a little thumbnail sketch of it. Verse 11. After Abraham's death, God blessed his son Isaac, who then lived near Beer Lahai, Roy. Now, we've, you may have forgotten, but we've traveled this way before. But the first time we were at Beer Lahai, Roy, which literally means well of the living one who sees me, it was Ishmael's home address, not Isaac's. Hagar had given it that name because God had cared for her there when she was with Ishmael in the desert. Well of the living one who sees me. But now who is living there? It's not the illegitimate son. It's the promised child, Isaac. Because God is watching over Isaac now, not Ishmael. That is what it means to be blessed by God, to have resurrection life now. To know that God has his eye on us for good not like a a tennis line judge who's just waiting all the time to to see when we put our foot out of line. It's waiting to penalize us. But as our heavenly father, the life of true blessing is a relationship with God, never for one moment outside of his loving gaze. He is the living one who sees us. And so Abraham's deathbed faith reminds us that it is always worth trusting God's promises and also Always worth doing whatever we can by word and deed and prayer by, to pass it on, to leave everything to the next generation. And if we're still not sure that that is worth it, that is, that is the blessed life, well, it's, let's take a look at the next scene in the story, which is life in the world outside. Life in the world outside. Verse 12, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Ishmael whom Sarah's slave, Hagar the Egyptian, bore to Abraham. It's as if the writer says to us, do you remember the one who used to live at Beher Lahai Roy? Well, let me tell you about him. And sadly, it's not a glowing write-up. The first thing we get is a reminder of his illegitimacy. He is the son of the slave woman, son of the flesh, not son of the promise. Ishmael was born out of Abraham and Sarah's faithlessness, not by God supernaturally keeping his promise to a couple well beyond the age of childbearing. But even though Ishmael wasn't the promised child, God still blessed him, multiplied his descendants. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael listed in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Tima, Jetah, Nafish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these are the names of the 12 tribal rulers according to their settlements and camps. Before Isaac was born, do you remember God had pleaded, so Abraham had pleaded with God, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. And God said he will be blessed in one way. He says, I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers and I will make him into a great nation. And so we get to 25 and we find 12 rulers because every single one of God's promises always comes true. No word of his ever falls to the ground, even when his promises are promises of judgment, not promises of blessing. You see that verse 17 and 18? 
Ishmael lived 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and he was gathered to his people. His descendants settled in the area from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go towards Asher, and they lived in hostility towards all the tribes related to them. Ishmael, he also lived a long life, like his father. But you notice their epitaphs are quite different. There is no mention here of a good old age full of years. Because Abraham lives, ge- sorry, Ishmael lives geographically and spiritually outside the place of his blessing. And what is more, the blessing of many descendants is something of a backhanded blessing because they're also destined for lives of hostility, lives of strife. Again, that is exactly what God said would happen. Chapter 16, God's words to Hagar, he, Ishmael, will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. That is a little snapshot of life in the world outside. It seems to offer so much prosperity and pleasure and purpose. It's the world we can see and touch. It's the world we're engaged with all the time at different seasons in our lives, whether we're a young person or an adult starting out in life or someone in middle age or someone heading towards retirement. The world appeals to us at different ways, at different times. But it is Ishmael's world. And it's a place of death, not life. It is marked fundamentally by hostility towards one another and towards God. And Paul put it like this uh, in Ephesians. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. By nature, we are Ishmael's descendants and Keturah's children. We are excluded from God's promises and blessings. We cannot inherit them by anything we do, by our birth. The only way we can be blessed by God, the only way we can be drawn in from the world outside to the place of his blessing is by his sovereign grace. And that is what we discover rather surprisingly in the next scene. Election in her womb. Election in her womb. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Padam Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. That's the story of chapter 24. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. Well, you notice Isaac has the same problem, doesn't he, that Abraham did? But unlike his dad, he doesn't take matters into his own hands. What does he do? He prays. And the Lord answers. But just in case we think that was an easy prayer to pray and an easy prayer to wait for an answer for, look at the end of verse 26. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So Isaac has to wait 20 years for God to answer this prayer, just five years less, in fact, than Abraham had had to wait for the birth of Isaac. So Isaac has to learn to have faith that God always keeps his promises just like Abraham did, just like we do. 
Isaac's problem was that his wife couldn't get pregnant. Rebecca's problem was that she was pregnant. Verse 22. The babies jostled each within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Rebecca's question in the Hebrew is more literally, why ever I? It is a kind of anguished prayer saying to God, what on earth is going on inside me? Maybe um, some of the mothers in the womb can remember when their babies were kicking them. I guess it's a sensation of, of joy, but also a sense of pain. Well, it is the pain that Rebecca focuses on because these children aren't having a little wriggle around. Literally, they are crushing and oppressing each other. There's a battle going on inside her womb. And Abraham explains what it is all about. Sorry, God explains. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the elder will serve the younger. So in the days before ultrasounds, God says, first of all to her, you're carrying twins. And then he says, all that pushing and shoving is part of my predetermined plan. But inside your womb, the first will not be the heir, and the second will not be the spare. It's going to be the other way around, because God has chosen to do things back to front and upside down. It's election in her womb. The Apostle Paul explains this in Romans chapter 9. He says, Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. The point is that on the face of it, there is absolutely no difference between these two children. Same father, same mother, same act of conception. Neither has any opportunity to, to be good enough to get God's blessing or to be bad enough to lose it. No difference, but an enormous spiritual difference. Because God has chosen one and not chosen the other. That is a shocking thing for us to learn. Because God's election smacks so bluntly up against our pride. We think to ourselves, surely... I can do something to get God's blessing. I can be good enough to get it, or surely that person has done something bad enough to lose it. But our lifetime achievements, our improvements to our character, our successes in our relationships, our contributions to society, our acts of religious devotion, nothing earn it. These two boys are chosen and rejected before they were born to make it abundantly clear that nothing we can ever do or nothing we can ever be will earn us God's blessing. We cannot get it for ourselves, by ourselves. We have to receive it from him. It's as Paul says here, Romans 9, not by works, but by him who calls. And we see God's plan unfold the moment the boys are born. Verse 24, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, just as God said there would be. And the first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau, which means red. 
After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. The first named according to his appearance. The second according to his actions. Jacob means grabber or grasper. And he is a grabber by name, grabber by nature. This little younger brother will not deserve God's blessing any more than Esau. But he's going to get it. Not because he's stronger but because God passes on his blessing by grace, not by works. And before we think that that means that somehow God is unfair, well, let us observe the final scene in this story, where we see very clearly how although God is absolutely sovereign in the way he works out his plans to bless, sovereign in his election in the womb, we are also absolutely responsible for our own actions, whether for good or evil. So second, uh, sorry, finally, godlessness in the kitchen. The boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Well, the boys' prenatal rivalry is fueled by postnatal parental favoritism and this family you just get the sense is a soap opera waiting to happen and then finally the tension boils over everything spills out in Jacob's kitchen once when Jacob was cooking some stew Esau came in from the open country famished he said to Jacob quick let me have some of that red stew I'm famished That is why he's also called Edom, which means red. Sorry, Esau means hairy. Edom means red. Esau returns from an unsuccessful hunting trip, and all he wants to do is stuff his face. He says to Jacob, I just want to gulp it down. Give me some of that stuff now. And his grasping little brother is not about to allow this opportunity to pass him by. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Maybe Jacob knows from his doting mother, the mother who who treats him as her favorite, that this is the plan to make him the heir. And maybe years and years of scheming have passed by this point. But whatever prompts Jacob to start negotiating, Esau is still absolutely responsible for his actions. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? Is he really about to die? Is a little bowl of soup? If he's really about to die, is a bowl of soup going to help him? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. What is the difference? What, what is going on with Esau here? What does he care about? Just the next 10 minutes. All he cares about is filling his stomach so he doesn't feel hungry in 10 minutes' time. He could not care less about his culturally God-given right to receive double the inheritance as the older brother. It means nothing to him. As long as he can fill his stomach and get hold of some of that red stuff. And so the story ends on a cliff edge. Verse 34. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Esau wasn't chosen in the womb, but he still still bears full responsibility 
for this dinner table debacle. That is clear from the way the narrator condemns him. The narrator doesn't condemn his cheating little brother, although it's pretty obvious, I think, isn't it, that Jacob is not a man of integrity, he's a cheat. But the narrator condemns Esau. Esau despised his birthright. And so no wonder the New Testament warns us uh, not to be like him. Hebrews 12, it says, See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. It's a little bit confusing. That reference to sexual immorality is probably uh, some sort of Jewish tradition from outside the Bible rather than chapter 25 of Genesis. But the point remains, Esau, in effect, prostituted himself to immediate worldly comforts and pleasures rather than seeking after God's invisible spiritual blessings. He was godless and worldly instead. His God was his stomach and his mind was set on the world and not on the world to come. And so from now on, Esau is on borrowed time and he stands as a warning to to you and me that, that we must not count God's blessings, his spiritual blessings as trivial and insignificant things. Because the world around us, if you like, is full of bowls of red stuff. Stuff that just promises immediate satisfaction to our earthly desires. We don't need to look much further, perhaps, than the unholy trinity of money, sex, and power. All good good gifts given to us by God, but so easily misused, so easily we think, if only I just had more of that now, then I'd be better. But the danger is if we do that, We end up forfeiting the blessing God wants to give us. We can tragically miss out through our own sinful choices and behaviors. Maybe not through a a dramatic, once-in-a-lifetime fall from grace, but simply through just habitually, day by day, valuing the stuff of this world more than we do value God's invisible blessings. So what have we seen? We've seen faith on his deathbed, life in the world outside, election in the womb, and godlessness in the kitchen. And through it all, do you notice, God remains absolutely sovereign in control. His plan to bless the world through Abraham's descendants will be fulfilled. And maybe we think, why is God doing it like this? It just doesn't seem fair. In a sense, it's not. Abraham... Isaac and Jacob, none of them deserved to receive God's blessings. Abraham, he shows faith on his deathbed, but, but he has messed up a lot by this point in the story. Isaac prays for his wealth, but, but his parental favoritism is going to sow the seeds for trouble in the years ahead. And Jacob inherits Esau's birthright, not because he's a better man, but because he's a cheat. But God chose these ordinary sinners, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not Keturah's children, not Ishmael's descendants, not Esau and his offspring, because that was the way God chose to bring the child of blessing into the world, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ came to live and to die and to restore us into right relationship with God. And he was descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so when we, we get to... A little bit later on in Ephesians 2, we read the beginning of that chapter later. We can read, Remember that at that time, 
You were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That is the blessing that is available to us today and available to those who will come after us. It is worth so much more than the crown that the king inherited. It is peace with God and peace with each other. Every promise guaranteed, even the sure and certain hope of eternal life, even for you today, if you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, if you put your trust in Jesus, every spiritual blessing can be yours. So may we receive his blessing, may we treasure his blessing, and may we pass it on to others. Shall we bow our heads and pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereign grace, that it was nothing that we have done or could do or ever be that would make us worthy enough to receive your blessing, your forgiveness, your friendship, relationship with you, resurrection life. But it's solely because of your grace that before the beginning of time, you set your love upon us and chose to bless us through Jesus Christ, who came to be our Savior and King. And so we pray this morning that you would help us, each one of us, to put our trust in him and to treasure your spiritual blessings far more than the things of this world. For we ask it in his name.